whose name we pray. Amen. I have a friend who was pastoring a Presbyterian church in a small Florida town. And the, it was a small church. It was less than 100 people. And the interesting thing was that just down the street was another Presbyterian church, also small, less than 100 people. And when that church, when that pastor was getting ready to retire, someone had the bright idea of merging the two churches. And it made total sense. Both churches were renting buildings. Neither were thriving financially or in ministry work. And, uh, and so the two churches sent leaders to meet together to hash out the details of what a merger would look like. Well, it took over a year to figure out all of the details and all of the issues. And here are just a few of the issues that they worked through. The name. Both churches had names that people in their churches liked. So was the new church going to keep one of their names, or were they going to rename it? The denomination. The churches were in similar but different denominations. So whose denomination would that new church be in? Leaders. Would the elders of both churches just combine to form a new session, or would the new congregation elect their leaders? Music. One church had a hymn book, they sang one. The other projected words on a screen. Whose, whose method would they adopt? And what seemed like it should be easy, let's just combine forces, right? And we'll be a bigger, stronger church. Actually was rather complicated. Well, we've, we've been studying the book of Acts, the story of the early church after the resurrection and the ascension. Of Jesus. And one of the biggest issues in the book of Acts, which is also one of the biggest issues in the whole New Testament, keeps coming up, is has to do with a religious merger. Has to do with two groups. You've got the Jewish believers who have grown up with the law of Moses, but have come to faith in Christ. And then you have the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, who have, did not grow up with the law of Moses, but have become believers. And both are coming together to form this new church. And when Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, that sounds simple, until you actually start trying to do it. And then all these issues come up. And, and the merger of these two groups started with kind of a question. What, what kind of Christians are we going to be? What kind of disciples are we to make, Jesus? Disciples that love God and neighbor or disciples that keep the law of Moses by being circumcised and not eating shellfish and, and sacrificing animals to, for the forgiveness of sins? And the leaders of the early church realized that if they didn't get this right, that this issue could cause confusion and error for centuries to come. And so they, they needed to act. And so we read in Acts 15 how the Holy Spirit guided the church through this emergency. And so if you're able, would you please stand for this reading of God's Word?
Acts 15, starting verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent out on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. This is God's word for God's people and the good of the world. Please be seated. The first thing that we see in this passage is that this problem was huge. This problem. What is the problem? There are men who are in the church who are very proud of their Jewish heritage, and they want to protect it. And twice Luke quotes them, essentially saying, hey, all these Gentile believers that are coming into the church and following Jesus, that's, that is great. But they need to get circumcised in order to be saved. And I love Luke's words here in verse 2. He says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. In other words, they got into it. They had a big dust-up, as they say in England, a terrific row. And why, why were they so confrontational? Why are Paul and Barnabas willing to get into it with them? Well, it's because they understood that this issue cuts to the very heart of the gospel. What does it mean to be saved? How are we saved? See, every other religion at the end of the day is about what you must do to be saved. Right? The rules for living, the advice for spiritual advancement. The, but the gospel is neither advice nor a set of rules. The gospel is good news. The good news of what Jesus has done for you. And that's the gospel that Peter and Paul and Barnabas were preaching to the Gentiles. But in the minds of these Pharisees, right, even these Pharisees who were believing Jesus, that was too simple. They couldn't comprehend how God could save someone just by believing. 
They couldn't comprehend maybe how God could love someone who was not Jewish, who didn't keep the law of Moses. But here's the question. If all people needed to do was to keep the law sufficiently, why did Jesus have to come? Why did he have to come? Jesus came not just to make us better law keepers, but to die for sinners and to set them free from the curse of the law. But someone might say, well, what's wrong with just adding a little bit of law to grace? What's wrong with saying, well, to be saved, you have to believe and, and be circumcised or baptized? Well, Here's the thing. It's a little bit like, if you ever get together, anybody ever play charades? Right? You get together with your friends, and you're, you're playing charades, okay? And you got a word, and you're, you're trying to get a, your, your team to, to guess what it is, right? Imagine if you're doing that, and then all of a sudden you say, okay, but let's do this. Let's, let's be able to talk, Okay? Let's, let's be able to use words to describe it. And then you, all your friends are like, wait, no, that, that's not charades. <laughs> if you talk, it's a different game. You're like playing taboo or just describing a word. You're no longer playing charades. When you add works... You add circumcision, the law of Moses, to grace, you're no longer talking about the gospel of grace. The other problem is that if you require any law to be saved, you have to require all of it. And while you may have been able to handle just that one small thing, baptism or circumcision, you can't handle the burden of the whole law. It would become a massive burden to you. Which is what Peter says in verse 10. He says to these, these people who are trying to require all this stuff, what does he say? Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's so interesting, isn't it? In one statement, one question, Peter is, in a sense, helping us understand the Old Testament. He's giving us this interpretive lens on what the law was all about in the Old Testament. What's he saying? He's saying that the law of Moses was never meant to be the way to God, the way to be saved. The law was a teacher. It was intended to teach us about how great the holiness of God is and how we, even on our best days, could never live up to his righteous demands. See, the Pharisees were fooling themselves. They, they thought that they could keep the law and that by doing so that they could save themselves. But here's the thing. If you break the law in one place, you've broken it in every place. That's what the book of James says. James 2, whoever keeps the law, the whole law, and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So maybe you've kept the command not to murder, but have you ever coveted? Ever. 
Maybe you, you kept the command not to commit adultery, but have you ever lied? If you've ever coveted, ever lied, ever dishonored your parents, you've broken the law. You're a lawbreaker. You cannot keep it. See, again, every major religion says, do this, you know, work your way to God. But the problem is, if you think about it, it is we're, they never tell you how much you have to do or how, how much you can get away with not doing. <laughs> it's kind of like running a race, you know, a, a race that only has a starting line, though. Imagine that. You're, you're lined up for this race, and the starter shoots off the starter's gun, and you start running. But there's, you don't know where you're going. You don't know how far are we going. Are we doing a 10K today? Are we doing a full marathon? Are we doing an ultra marathon? You, all these works religions never tell you how far you have to go, how much you have to do. Only Christianity says, here's what you have to do. You have to keep the whole law of God. Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Because he is perfect, and must punish sin. But when you realize that you'll never be able to keep the law, then there is good news for you then you will find out that there is someone who kept the law for you. Jesus Christ never sinned, was completely righteous and holy. And if you put your faith in him, you are united to him by faith. And it's as though you have kept the whole law. That is what grace is all about. That is the core message of Christianity. And if we miss that, we miss we lose the gospel. And that is why this council was necessary, why the Jerusalem council, as we call it, in Acts 15, was so necessary. There are a lot of things that are not worth fighting about in the church. When I was first on staff at a church, uh, the decorating committee for the church was repainting the sanctuary. And they had chosen a color which... When we first looked at it, we just thought it looks kind of off-white. But when they actually put it up, it was definitely a shade of pink. And the senior pastor that I was working with, when he went in and saw that, we are not going to have a pink church. Lines were drawn. Words were said. Feelings were hurt. And I'm thinking, really? The world is lost without Jesus, and we are fighting over a paint color. But there are some things that are worth debate and even dissension. Sometimes there is a time to stand up for truth. But it takes wisdom to know when. But a no-brainer is when it has to do with the gospel and people's freedom. This was so important that they got all of the apostles and the elders from all the different churches together into Jerusalem to discuss it. And this was, this was really the first church council. Now, there have been church councils throughout church history. This is the, really the first one. And it really sets a precedence for the church going forward. That the church should be connectional, should, should try to speak 
with one voice when it can. Uh, side note, this is one of the reasons that I'm a Presbyterian. Because I, I believe, I see the value in a connectional church. That being submissive to one another and having checks and balances outside of just this church. See, without formal connections, what we call denominations, it's more or less every man for himself, every church for itself. Uh, and that may sound great to visionary leaders, but it can cause chaos and really no standard for truth. Denominations are not perfect, for sure, but there is at least a process and a forum for if I were to start preaching heresy from the pulpit, right, what would happen? Well, there would be a trial in our presbytery, in the denomination. And if I were found guilty of not preaching the scriptures, then I would not be allowed to teach again. There is that denominations, again, they are not perfect, but good, at least for checks and balances. And for Peter and Paul and Barnabas, this was not so much about their lives, right? They had grown up Jewish. They were circumcised. They could have kept the Mosaic law if they needed to. This was really about the Gentile believers who had been coming into the church and heard the gospel of grace. And they were the ones that were trying to figure out what was important here, right? Is, do, is believing in Jesus important or is getting circumcised? Is becoming a Christian or becoming Jewish? What's important? And verse 7 tells us how the council starts. It started with much debate among the apostles and elders. Sometimes you have to have a lot of debate about these things. But then Peter gets up and speaks. And he basically says this. He said, God, ask me to tell the Gentiles the good news about Jesus. Many of them believed and were saved. And there is no special treatment in God's kingdom. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. The gospel is for everyone who believes, and it's free. And then Paul and Barnabas get up, and they share all these stories of how these Gentiles are coming to faith on their missionary journeys. And then James gets up. And we didn't read this far, but I'm going to tell you what happens. Right? James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, and also the, clearly the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he speaks, and he essentially agrees with Peter. He says, listen, the Old Testament prophets told us that this would happen, that the Gentiles would become grafted into the faith, and that we Jews don't have a special right to be the only people that God loves. And so by the end of uh, the time James finishes speaking, they have all realized the truth, which is what Peter said in verse 11. What did he say? He said, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And they come to agreement on the matter. The Holy Spirit brings unity among them. But then they need to do one more thing. They need to communicate their decision to the churches. Okay? So they send out a letter. What does the letter say? It says... Basically, salvation is by grace alone. That's all you have to do. Don't worry about anything else. Is that what it says? No. That's actually not what it says. 
The solution was not, don't worry, be happy. The solution was grace, then obedience and love. Okay? The letter that they actually send out says essentially this. It says, because salvation is by grace, don't burden the Gentile believers by making them be circumcised or do anything to earn their salvation. But also, don't eat any food sacrificed to idols or that's been strangled or bloody, and don't commit sexual immorality. Wait, what? Which is it? Is, it? is it all of grace, or is it grace and then all these other things? Don't eat this food and don't commit adultery. It sounds contradictory. Well, okay, this is going to take a little bit of unpacking because there's a lot going on here. First of all, it seems like there's just one big error going on here. That is people wanting to require circumcision. But there's actually two errors going on here. One is adding works to grace. And the second is commanding works that are no longer God's will. See, circumcision at one time in the Old Testament was God's will. If you want to be part of the covenant people of God, you had to undergo circumcision. You were male. That was part of joining the people of God. And the interesting thing about that sign is it's not to be indelicate here, but it was a bloody sign that was pointing forward to the coming of Christ who would shed his blood for his people. But since Christ came and shed his blood, there is no longer a need for his people to shed blood. And so Jesus replaces the sign of circumcision with what? What? Baptism. Yes. Now baptism is the new covenant sign to enter into the people of God, to enter into the church. You need to be baptized. And so uh, baptism replaces circumcision. Circumcision becomes something we no longer do to obey God. But back to the first part of that, adding works to grace. And the question that's always asked when we talk about God's grace is, well, what about good works? Don't they matter? And the answer is yes. They do, but in the right order. Okay? So this is the formula that the Bible gives us. You ready? Okay, G equals S plus W. Grace equals salvation, then works. We are saved by grace, and then we are called to do good works. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. Remember what he says? He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one can boast. Grace alone for salvation. And then he goes on. For we are his, what? Workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Again, the order. Grace equals salvation, 
then works which God prepared for us to do. Works are important, but they have to be on the right side of the equation. We've got some math teachers out there. What happens if you get the, the, the number on the, or the, the thing on the wrong side of the equation? You're never going to get the right answer, right? You're never going to get the right answer. And too often, we want to say grace plus works equals salvation. Grace plus baptism equals salvation. Grace plus right theology equals salvation. No. If you add anything to grace, it's not grace anymore. If you try to earn it, it's no longer a gift. If we try to add things to grace, we take away people's freedom and heap up burdens on them, as Peter says. And the gospel's job is to take away burdens and allow us the sweet burden of walking with Jesus. But back to the works question. Does God want us to do good works? Yes. He created us for them. He wants us to live according to his commandments because it is the best way for us to live. We will be happiest. We will be healthiest. We will represent God best if we live according to his will. Jesus says, if you love me, what? Anybody know? Keep my commandments. Not in order to earn his love, but because our obedience is a good thing for us. And it's a relational thing. And it is good for the world to see. My children, when they lived at home, which they no longer do, they didn't obey me because they were afraid of me or trying to earn my love. They obeyed me because they loved me. And they knew that what I wanted was best for them most of the time. How much more God, right? So the one part of the letter that the council sends to the churches makes sense. Don't burden your people with circumcision. Don't add works to grace. But ask them to be sexually pure. Yes, good. Sexual purity. That is one of the Ten Commandments, right? And that is God's will and his best for us. But what about all that abstaining from food, sacrifice to idols and such? Isn't that requiring the ceremonial parts of the Mosaic law that Jesus fulfilled? Well, this is where the council exercises practical wisdom and love. Because they realize that Gentile believers might inadvertently offend Jewish converts and would-be converts if they ate those foods. So we could summarize the letter with, with these words. No needful circumcision, but no needless offense. And now, eating those foods, sacrificed to idols, or strangled with blood, was, could be, have been a needless offense to those Jewish converts. These Christians, they could have eaten any food, right? Even food sacrificed to idols, because God had made all food clean. But they were asking their people to give up some of their rights so that they wouldn't offend their weaker brothers. That's part of loving our neighbor. Sometimes it's good for us to give up our rights for the good of others. To not maybe drink alcohol in front of those that might offend. To not maybe share all of our political views with someone who's thinking about joining the church. 
not wrong to have political views, but we don't want anything of secondary importance to get in the way of someone coming to Christ, which is of primary importance. And food was that secondary issue that cr the Christians could give up to keep the focus on the primary thing, the gospel of grace. These apostles and elders, they showed conviction in the primary things, the truth of the gospel. They showed wisdom and love in the secondary issues. May we learn to do that as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us how the early church wrestled with big issues, these issues that we still wrestle with today. What is the place of grace? What is the place of works? Lord, we know that we need to get that right. We need to know that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. We know that the, the Protestant Reformation was fought over that issue. Father, it is still something that we need to speak with, with clarity today. So we pray that you give us the courage to do that, to maintain pure gospel. We also pray that you give us wisdom and love in secondary issues as we love other believers, as we seek to love the world. And give us wisdom to know when which is which what is primary and what is secondary, and in all things to give glory to you.